Human Nature and Conduct by John Dewey Part 3, Section 3 The Nature of Deliberation Deliberation as Imaginative Rehearsal Preference and Choice Strife of Reason and Passion Nature of Reason This LibriVox recording, read by William Jones, is in the public domain. So far, the discussion has ignored the fact that there is an influential school of moralists, best represented in contemporary thought by the utilitarians, which also insists upon the natural, empirical character of moral judgments and beliefs. But, unfortunately, this school has followed a false psychology, and has tended, by calling out a reaction, actually to strengthen the hands of those who persist in assigning to morals a separate domain of action and in demanding a separate agent of moral knowledge. The essentials of this false psychology consist in two traits. The first, that knowledge originates from sensations instead of from habits and impulses, and the second, that judgment about good and evil in action consists in calculation of agreeable and disagreeable consequences of profit and loss. It is not surprising that this view seems to many to degrade morals as well as to be false to facts. If the logical outcome of an empirical view of moral knowledge is that all morality is concerned with calculating what is expedient, politic, or prudent, measured by consequences in the ways of pleasurable and painful sensations, then, say moralists of the orthodox school, we will have naught to do with such a sordid view. It is a reduction to the absurd of its premises. We will have a separate department for morals, and a separate organ of moral knowledge. Our first problem is then to investigate the nature of ordinary judgments upon what it is best or wise to do, or, in ordinary language, the nature of deliberation. We begin with a summary assertion that deliberation is a dramatic rehearsal in imagination of various competing possible lines of action. It starts from the blocking of efficient overt action due to that conflicts of prior habit and newly released impulse to which reference has been made then each habit each impulse involved in the temporary suspense of overt action takes its turn in being tried out deliberation is an experiment in finding out what the various lines of possible action really are like it is an experiment in making various combinations of selected elements of habits and impulses to see what the resultant action would be like if it were entered upon. But the trial is in imagination, not in overt fact. The experiment is carried on by tentative rehearsals in thought which do not affect physical facts outside the body. Thought runs ahead and foresees outcomes, 
and thereby avoids having to await the instruction of actual failure and disaster. An act overtly tried out is irrevocable. Its consequences cannot be blotted out. An act tried out in imagination is not final or fatal. It is retrievable. Each conflicting habit and impulse takes its turn in projecting itself upon the screen of imagination. It unrolls a picture of its future history, of the career it would have if it were given head. Although overt exhibition is checked by the pressure of contrary propulsive tendencies, this very inhibition gives habit a chance at manifestation in thought. Deliberation means precisely that activity is disintegrated and that its various elements hold one another up. While none has force enough to become the center of a redirected activity or to dominate a course of action, each has enough power to check others from exercising mastery. Activity does not cease in order to give way to reflection. Activity is turned from execution into intra-organic channels, resulting in dramatic rehearsal. If activity were directly exhibited, it would result in certain experiences and contacts with the environment. It would succeed by making environing objects, things, and persons co-partners in its forward movement, or else it would run against obstacles and be troubled, possibly defeated. These experiences of contact with objects and their qualities give meaning and character to an otherwise fluid, unconscious activity. We find out what seeing means by the objects which are seen. They constitute the significance of visual activity, which would otherwise remain a blank. Pure activity is, for consciousness, pure emptiness. It acquires a content or filling of means only in static termini, what it comes to rest in, or in the obstacles which check its onward movement and deflect it. As has been remarked, the object is that which objects. There is no difference in this respect between a visible course of conduct and one proposed in deliberation. We have no direct consciousness of what we propose to do. We can judge its nature, assign its meaning, only by following it to the situations whither it leads, noting the objects against which it runs, and seeing how they rebuff, or unexpectedly, encourage it. In imagination as in fact, we know a road only by what we see as we travel on it. Moreover, the objects which prick out the course of proposed act, until we see its design, also serve to direct eventual overt activity. Every object hit upon, as the habit traverses its imaginary path, has a direct effect upon existing activities. 
it reinforces inhibits and redirects habits already working or stirs up others which had not previously actively entered in in thought as well as in overt action the objects experienced in following out a course of action attract repel satisfy annoy promote and retard thus deliberation proceeds to say that at last it ceases is to say that choice or decision takes place well what then is choice simply hitting in imagination upon an object which furnishes an adequate stimulus to the recovery of overt action choice is made as soon as some habit or combination of elements of habits and impulse find a way fully open then energy is released the mind is made up composed and unified as long as deliberation pictures shoals or rocks or troublesome gales as marking the route of a contemplated voyage deliberation goes on but when the first various factors in action fit harmoniously together when imagination finds no annoying hindrance when there is a picture of open seas filled sails and favoring winds the voyage is definitely entered upon this decisive direction of action constitutes choice it is a great error to suppose that we have no preferences until there is a choice we are always biased beings tending in one direction rather than another the occasion of deliberation is an excess of preferences not natural apathy or an absence of likings we want things that are incompatible with one another therefore we have to make a choice of what we really want or of the course of action that is which most fully releases activities choice is not the emergence of preference out of indifference it is the emergence of a unified preference out of competing preferences biases that had held one another in check now temporarily at least reinforce one another and constitute a unified attitude the moment arrives when imagination pictures an objective consequence of action which supplies an adequate stimulus and releases definitive action all deliberation is a search for a way to act not for a final terminus its office is to facilitate stimulation hence there is a reasonable and unreasonable choice the object thought of may simply stimulate some impulse or habit to a pitch of intensity where it is temporarily irresistible it then overrides all competitors and secures for itself the sole right-of-way the object looms large in imagination it swells to fill the field it allows no room for alternatives it absorbs us enraptures us carries us away sweeps us off our feet by its own attractive force then choice is arbitrary and unreasonable but the object thought of may be one which stimulates 
by unifying and harmonizing different competing tendencies. It may release an activity in which all are fulfilled, not indeed in their original form, but in a sublimated fashion, that is, any way which modifies the original direction of each by reducing it to a component along with others in an action of transformed quality. Nothing is more extraordinary than the delicacy, promptness, and ingenuity with which deliberation is capable of making eliminations and recombinations in projecting the course of a possible activity. To every shade of imagined circumstance there is a vibrating response, and to every complex situation a sensitiveness as to its integrity, a feeling of whether it does justice to all facts, or overrides some to the advantage of others. Decision is reasonable when deliberation is so conducted. There may be error in the result, but it comes from lack of data, not from ineptitude in handling them. These facts give us the key to the old controversy as to the respective places of desire and reason in conduct. It is notorious that some moralists have deplored the influence of desire. They have found the heart of strife between good and evil in the conflict of desire with reason, in which the former has force on its side, and the latter authority. But reasonableness is in fact a quality of an effective relationship among desires rather than a thing opposed to desire. It signifies the order, perspective, and proportion which is achieved during deliberation out of a diversity of earlier incompatible preferences. Choice is reasonable when it induces us to act reasonably, that is, with regard to the claims of each of the competing habits and impulses. This implies, of course, the presence of a comprehensive object, one which coordinates, organizes, and functions each factor of the situation which give rise to conflict, suspense, and deliberation. This is true when some bad impulses and habits enter in as when approved ones require unification. We have already seen the effects of choking them off, of efforts at direct suppression. Bad habits can be subdued only by being utilized as elements in a new, more generous and comprehensive scheme of action, and good ones be preserved from rot only by similar use. The nature of the strife of reason and passion is well stated by William James. The cue of passion, he says, in effect, is to keep imagination dwelling upon those objects which are congenial to it, which feed it, and which by feeding it intensify its force until it crowds out all thought of other objects. An impulse or habit which is strongly emotional magnifies all objects that are congruous with it, and smothers those which are opposed whenever they present themselves. A passionate activity learns to work itself up artificially. As Oliver Cromwell indulged in fits of anger 
when he wanted to do things that his conscience would not justify. A presentiment is felt that if the thought of contrary objects is allowed to get a lodgment in imagination, these objects will work and work to chill and freeze out the ardent passion of the moment. The conclusion is not that the emotional passionate phase of action can be or should be eliminated in behalf of a bloodless reason. More passions, not fewer, is the answer. To check the influence of hate there must be sympathy, while to rationalize sympathy there are needed emotions of curiosity, caution, and respect for the freedom of others, dispositions which evoke objects which balance those called up by sympathy and prevent its degeneration into maudlin sentiment and meddling interference. Rationality, once more, is not a force to evoke against impulse and habit. It is the attainment of a working harmony among diverse desires. Reason, as a noun, signifies the happy cooperation of a multitude of dispositions, such as sympathy, curiosity, exploration, experimentation, frankness, and pursuit to follow things through circumspection, to look about at the context, etc., etc. The elaborate systems of science are born not of reason, but of impulses, at first slight and flickering. Impulses to handle, move about, to hunt, to uncover, to mix things separated and divide things combined, to talk and to listen. Method is their effectual organization into continuous dispositions of inquiry, development, and testing. It occurs after these acts and because of their consequences. Reason, the rational attitude, is the resulting disposition, not a ready-made antecedent, which can be invoked at will and set into movement. The man who would intelligently cultivate intelligence will widen, not narrow, his life of strong impulses, while aiming at their happy coincidence in cooperation. The clue of impulse is, as we say, to start something. It is in a hurry. It rushes us off our feet. It leaves no time for examination, memory, and foresight. But the clue of reason is, as the phrase goes, to stop and think. Force, however, is required to stop the ongoing of a habit or impulse. This is supplied by another habit. The resulting period of delay, of suspended and postponed overt action, is the period in which activities that are refused direct outlet project imaginative counterparts. It signifies, in technical phrase, the mediation of impulse, for an isolated impulse is immediate, narrowing the world down to the directly present. Variety of competing tendencies enlarges the world. It brings a diversity of considerations before the mind, and enables action to take place finally in view of an object which is generously conceived and delicately refined, and composed by a long process of selections and combinations. 
in popular phrase to be deliberate is to be slow unhurried it takes time to put objects in order there are however vices of reflection as well as of impulse we may not look far enough ahead because we are hurried into action by stress of impulse but we may also become over-interested in the delights of reflection we become afraid of assuming the responsibilities of decisive choice and action and in general be sicklied over by a pale cast of thought we may become so curious about remote and abstract matters that we give only a begrudged impatient attention to the things right about us we may fancy we are glorifying the love of truth for its own sake when we are only indulging a pet occupation and slighting demands of the immediate situation men who devote themselves to thinking are likely to be unusually unthinking in some respects as for example in immediate personal relationships a man to whom exact scholarship is an absorbing pursuit may be more than ordinarily vague in ordinary matters humility and impartiality may be shown in a specialized field and pettiness and arrogance in dealing with other persons reason is not an antecedent force which serves as a panacea it is a laborious achievement of habit needing to be continually worked over a balanced arrangement of propulsive activities manifested in deliberation namely reason depends upon a sensitive and proportionate emotional sensitiveness only a one-sided over-specialized emotion leads to thinking of it as separate from emotion the traditional association of justice and reason has good psychology back of it both imply a balanced distribution of thought and energy deliberation is irrational in the degree in which an end is so fixed a passion or interest so absorbing that the foresight of consequences is warped to include only what furthers execution of its predetermined bias deliberation is rational in the degree in which forethought flexibly remakes old aims and habits institutes perception and love of new ends and acts end of part three section three the nature of deliberation